0: Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis might be more fashion than Donald Trump,
1: and just a little bit smarter. It's not necessarily, oh, we're going to have a civil war soon, but I'm just saying, if you look at that statistic there, it just shows just because the civil war is, is over doesn't mean that animosity just goes away, or you automatically were like, yeah, we were wrong, hey, I'm so sorry, yeah, we were wrong. This is the Snapbook, where each week, Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla help you digest their favorite stories from the world of sports and politics. The, the history books have gotten away with a lot of the bad things that we've done a society because they were non Christian nations. And just like the dreaded Snapbook, don't be surprised when we start bringing you over to the left side of the fairway.
0: Back in the good old days. You could have gotten a job doing just about anything if you sat there and said, I have a college degree. But now that's not the case. So we're gonna sit there we're going to bat kids, and we're gonna back on these kids we're gonna sit there and say you're gonna owe, you know, thousands of dollars of debt. And in many cases, some of them pay for maybe twenty or thirty thousand dollars if they borrow. They might pay two or three hundred thousand dollars in their lifetime with all the competitive interest.
1: Now here are your hackers of the week, Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla. Welcome back into the Snaphook Podcast. Another week, another exciting edition as the MLB trade deadline is upon us and it was it was popping off like a Fourth of July barbecue. But first, a lot of stuff going on and the political world, and, and we've got to tip our hat to Scott as, as he reached out and, and made a connection for us and, and brought in a, a big guest this week. So, we'll have Scott introduce our guest and, and get us rolling here.
0: Yes, I am so happy. Uh, I mean, I, I am actually giddy right now. Uh, Joanne Carducci, uh, better known to uh, Jojo from Jers. Uh For those of y'all who are on, are we going to call it Twitter? Are we going to call it um, X?
2: I'm gonna call it Twitter till probably the day I die. So, or the day it dies. But I'm gonna call it Twitter.
0: Um, and really, I've been following uh, been following her since, uh, gosh, I can't even think back that far. Probably maybe 2017 or 18, you know, on, on Twitter at least. Um, and so, what interests me actually, you know, she she has a, a great podcast. Are you effing kidding me? Uh, which I, I've listened to the, the last few, and uh, she has uh, some post that she's putting up on substack i've actually started my own substack uh, recently because i just love writing and so it's a great spot and i definitely recommend it you know for those of y'all who are going out there and she's also involved with a group uh called red wine and blue uh, which we're definitely going to touch on you know before we leave this evening so uh joanne thank you so much for joining us this evening
2: it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I just wanted to just add <laughs> to mention the, the the trade deadline. My Yankees did nothing, so we're dealing with that. But I digress. Thank you for having Good. me. <laughs> yeah, K.
0: Middleton just fell off his couch, but you know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I think to start us off, I, uh, one of the things that was actually interested in me uh, in you initially when I because I, I was following this on Twitter. Is that you actually did kind of what I do? Um, I am a support facilitator and case manager for special education, and I know that you uh, you were a paraprofessional. Is that correct? Yeah. An instructional aide. Yeah. Um, and I actually did that uh, for a little while, when I was, you know, in the middle of my career as well. And so, I guess you know maybe uh i mean this is such an amazing story how you go from a suburban housewife who's you know working in education to where you are now where you have the hundreds of thousands of followers and uh, you're just you know a monster in in democratic politics so you know i guess how did that journey get started and you know is there anything about you know the the old job that you miss
2: Well, I'll start with that part of the question first, because there's a ton about the old job that I miss, which is the children, because there is no way, unless you don't have a heart at all, that you cannot, that you can avoid getting attached to those kids, especially the kids that, you know, for me, it's the nonverbal kids who you find a way to help them communicate. And when you can get a child who can't communicate to express their wants or needs, like we did a lot of work with, we did ABA, so we did a lot of work with, you know, motivators like Candy. And we had this one child who I can't name, but, you know, when I first met him, he had no no ability to c- communicate at all. And by the time I left several years later, he was able to identify which, you know, motivator he wanted, whether it was a Skittle or a, you know, a Sour Patch Kid, because he loved Sour Patch, anything sour really. but It's that that I miss because you can't, there's nothing in any other really element of life where you can recreate that, really there isn't. And so I do miss that for sure. Um, But as far as the journey, I guess uh, (laughs) you gotta start, I guess you have to start with Trump because, you know, I was, I, I majored in communication politics and law in college. That's what I thought I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to be what Jen Psaki became And then life does what life does, and life did what life does. And it derailed me in the capacity that I didn't pursue that passion. And I sort of meandered through life into suburbia um, and lost track of that passion of mine. And then this TV game show host with, you know, kind of like heat miser look, he comes down that escalator. He's a punchline until that moment. And I thought still a punchline at that moment. He comes down that escalator and he says that Mexicans are rapists, and I said, "Well, surely the, the the rest of the party will shun him. This this is unacceptable, and even Republicans will know that." And as I watched that line move with him and with my own family members, as I watched the line move from John from Mexicans are rapists to not disavowing the KKK to to attacking John McCain and on and on and on with every time they moved the line, I became a little bit more activated. And that part of myself that was lost for so long to suburban life started coming back online. And I wouldn't have ever left education uh, if it paid a livable wage, which sadly it doesn't. Um, So my passion sort of became something I pursued as a a means to support my children, which is my 1000% focus. Um, And I couldn't do that on a paraprofessional's pay.
1: Uh, I'm curious real quick you know you mentioned Donald Trump there at at the end and I'm curious as we look at today's democratic politics where I almost feel like and this is me maybe on the outside looking as I'm maybe a little bit more left of the democrats but how often do you think the democratic party spends just focusing on beating Trump or focusing on Trumpism and instead of maybe uh, you know, being able to, to, to pull out of that muck necessarily and, and, and start pushing through some progressive policy, because it seems to me, you know, even across the last eight years, he's pulled everything into such a Trump centric focus. Right. Because when he was president, it was either you love Trump or you hate Trump. That's all everybody talked about. Uh, and then it was, you know, when it's time to run for president, it was, well, it's not Trump. You know, everybody band together. Let's get Trump out of office. And then now it's been the focus is we've got to make sure Trump can't run again. And now that he is running again, it's, well, hey, we got to make sure Trump doesn't get elected again because he's, you know, all this other stuff. And so I'm just curious of how much, you know, in, in your opinion, he's kind of just dragged everything to himself instead of being able to get some of these progressive things that people are running on actually accomplished.
2: Well, that's interesting because I think that's sort of like a a two-pronged answer because I think that he we ignore him to our collective peril, right? So, like, I think there's this very fine line with Donald Trump where you can't ignore him. It's like ignoring the monkey in the corner of the room who's throwing feces at your face. You can't fully ignore him. You have to acknowledge his existence, but... Um, To allow him to set the narrative is also a a, a trap we've fallen into in the past, and we've seen how that goes. I think that the problem here is not necessarily that the Biden administration and the Democrats haven't actually accomplished the progressive goals that they have set out to accomplish. It's that the messaging isn't getting through all the noise, and the noise is coming from the monkey in the corner of the room who keeps throwing poop at our faces because actually Joe Biden has passed the first – any of any kind gun legislation in in over a decade which was bipartisan he he passed a bipartisan infrastructure bill Despite the climate that exists in D.C. as it is, he also passed the um, infrastructure, I mean, the Inflation Reduction Act, which has in it the first real significant environmental policy any president has passed in our country's history. So I don't think that he and the Democrats aren't actually working towards accomplishing the progressive agenda that AOC and AOC's like acolytes endorse because AOC has endorsed Biden. I think the problem is that Trump is this shiny object that pe- that the Republicans keep shaking in some way, shape, or form, whether it is by saying that he is innocent or by just amplifying him in general. And because we have to manage this kind of Mount Everest of crazy – He takes up a lot of oxygen. And I think that overpowers the voices that are coming from the Democratic Party that are actually achieving things. It's also more difficult now because we have a House majority that is Republican. But in the two years that Joe Biden had a Democratic majority in the House and a slim, slim, slim one in the Senate, they did, and who was able to accomplish uh, by partisan bipartisan legislation as well. So I think it's more of a messaging thing than it is an actual lack of attention to um, progressive agendas. i was
1: just curious too, real quick, when you mentioned, but you know, we the Democrats had the majority in in the first two years. It, it seems to be too. It's I don't know if this is a Democrat thing or you know, some of the you know I like to call it West Wing brain on the podcast, but it, it seems like. the the need for bipartisanism uh, is so strong on the Democratic side versus, you know, when the Republicans have control, they just push through whatever they want and they don't care about bipartisanism at all. Why do you think it is that, you know, the Democrats specifically, you know, want that bipartisanism versus just getting the goal accomplished? You know, when you look at say like Medicare for all, what started out was a really, really great bill, you know, by the time it gets, Work through bipartisanism that you know republicans who really were never going to vote for it in the first place hack away now we're left with not as good a bill so i'm curious why do you think that the need for bipartisanism on these bills are there from the left but not necessarily from the right
2: well i'll start with why it's not there from the right and that is that the right doesn't intend to um, govern they just want to rule it's a party without platform or policy it's a party of populism, it's a cult of personality, it's not a party that intends to actually legislate. We've seen that because this year they've had the majority in the House, the slimmest majority, and what have they done? They've investigated gas stoves and Hunter Biden's you-know-what picks. So I don't think that Republicans are particularly interested in anything bipartisan or otherwise. They just want to, you know, they want to manufacture crises, they want to stoke outrage. That's, that's their agenda because those things get a lot of attention. It goes back to the monkey in the corner of the room, right? So, like, that's where we focus a lot of our attention. Mm-hmm. So Republicans aren't interested in actual infrastructure, actual uh, bipartisanship, because they're not interested in in governing. Um, that's why we also see so much of them subverting democracy by trying to gerrymander maps to the point where they're really just cheating uh, because they can't win by conventional means because they don't offer the American people anything uh, except this sort of like fake outrage mm-hmm. and populism. She might so, be a part. I, I, Oh sorry. sorry. Uh,
0: so what I was, you know, I guess what I'm interested in is, I, you know, you mentioned the monkey in the, room, in the corner of the room, and and uh, as we, you know, discussed in email, you know, Tim and I, we do a, a scumbag at the end of each episode, and I have resisted ever making Trump a scumbag because to me, you have to be human to be a scumbag, <laughs> and mm. and to me, the the uh, the closest thing I could compare him to is a Bond villain that's had a traumatic brain injury. (laughs) Um, But, uh, but the thing is, is that we eventually we have to move beyond. I'm hoping, you know, we can move beyond that. And so really interested uh, because you're on the front lines. I mean, you're taking a lot of the slings and arrows that, you know, people like Tim and I don't take because, you know, we don't have the followers or, you know, anything like that. And, and really my, in my personality, that's not, really who I am. And so, you know, that part of me when I reached out is like, so like you're so out there, you know, discussing what's going on with your personal life and also, you know, taking on, you know, so many people who are doing like the death threats and all this, that and the other. So I'm really interested, like, you know, particularly like red, white and blue, uh, reaching out to suburban women. I mean, do you see this as something as a, a long range plan? Or do you think, are we just trying to get through this crisis until Trump does whatever it is, he, you know, he's going to do?
2: Well, I think, um, you know, I think we have to acknowledge that if Trump is out of the equation at some point, and let's be honest here, the guy's not exactly the picture of youthful health. You know what I mean? Like he does have an expiration date. I don't think he's Keith Richards. Um, I, 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 He's just, <laughs> I don't think you can subsist on, uh, you know, snorting Adderall and Diet Coke and fry grease for the rest of your life and to well into your, you know, hundreds. But um, there is going to be something after Trump. What that looks like, we don't yet know. Um, but, I think what I have learned through, and red, white, and blue is crucial to this, is that something we all, I can't speak for you guys, but I know I took for granted and I thought I was paying attention. I took for granted the daily practice that democracy actually is. I took for granted that the liberties and freedoms and rights that I had, because I say that in the past tense, were there. For will be there for my daughter, for my son. I took it for granted. And here I am, a woman with a 10-year-old daughter who doesn't have the same rights that I had. So I think irrespective of Donald Trump in the equation, and he is very much still in the equation, he's the front runner and likely nominee for that party's nomination, which is insane. But irrespective of him, uh, we have to, on the other side of all of this crazy, we have to remind ourselves that we can't take this for granted anymore and that democracy is a daily practice. So red, wine, and blue, I think they're here for the long haul because what they're doing, what I'm so proud to be a part of, is they're setting up sort of the systems in place where suburban women and men and whomever can get involved in democracy, participate in democracy, because at the end of the day, it's not we, the government. It's not we, the elected official. It's not we, the person in, on Capitol Hill, it's we the people, and we the people have to remind ourselves all the time that the power is ours, and that is a daily practice, and it takes work, and that's what Red Wine and Blue is all about.
1: I'm and glad you mentioned the uh, you know what happens next, right? Because I think you know one of the things that Trump did is he just he he made the the things that we kept quiet you know said out loud, but also he he also allowed levels of propaganda to creep into our world that just were never there before. And, and you know, what scares me about what's going on right now, I think, you know, an example like PragerU to me is is just an absolutely god-awful company that, you know, has, for example, worked their way into Florida's school system and is, and is helping to write, um, you know, curriculum for an entire state. And, you know, now we're going to get what was already our history in this country was already, you know, white male-centric. It's now going to get worse. And so as we say what's next that's what's really scary to me because to me trump isn't what scares me you know trump is such a crude person that he's never going to you know get that fascist state that he actually wants cuz he does it in such a poor way but what they do have is is trump's open up this idea of thinking that if they actually had a smooth talking fascist on the right he'd be able to come in and do pretty darn well and i think that's that's shown it's just the problem is they don't have that guy. Ron DeSantis is a buffoon as he gets out of Florida and starts dealing with people like he just, he's an idiot. And I think most of us who pay attention knew Ron DeSantis was an idiot. But if you talk to anybody in Texas, like they think Ron DeSantis is a cool guy. Like, oh yeah, I like Ron. I'd, I'd vote for him if Trump's not available. But like, they just don't have that smooth talking guy. And I'm, I'm just curious what really happens there because the path is wide open if, if someone actually was able to take it on the right because what Trump did, he just broke down a lot of barriers and he's allowed all this fake information and distrust to creep in. Um, and just this, what's next is, is really, really scary. And I think, you know, especially here in Texas too, um, where, you know, you mentioned those women's rights that have been taken away. That, that kind of started here, right. And, 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 bled out throughout the country. So, um, there's some, there's some interesting things in that what happens next, because someone's going to vie for that seat. um, of, of fascism on the right because they've shown it works. And it just depends on like, is this guy a good public speaker or not at the end of the day? Because that's what it takes. Like, are you charismatic? Are you a good public speaker? Can you get the people going? And they just haven't found that guy yet. But the moment they do, like the the system is set up and ready to go. We're already a pretty like far, like we're already a right leaning country, just the way things are and the way that we're set up with, with our capitalist partners. And so um, long story short, like, yes, I agree that the next what happens next in this election is is really, really scary.
2: Yeah, and if Trump were smarter, to your point, if Trump were savvier and smarter and had an iota of actual common sense in his head coupled with, and I hate saying this word because I don't particularly find it to be true, but I know that it is true because, look, he's become the Republican Party's most powerful person in their existence. And I'm not saying that to be hyperbolic. It is true. The the level of loyalty and fealty and sycophancy we have seen with Donald Trump rivals anybody who's ever been a Republican in the history of time, and that includes Abraham Lincoln. Let's be absolutely clear about that. So he is charismatic. If he had as much intellect or even common sense as he does charisma, and again, I hate saying that word, he would have been Absolutely deadly. We would not have seen a failed insurrection. We wouldn't be talking post-January 6 about Donald Trump's indictments. We'd be talking post-January 6 about which bunk in the gulag I would get. I'm not kidding. Like, this is not, again, to be hyperbolic, but luckily he's an idiot and a buffoon, and um, he's never, ever going to be anything but that. But but to your point also, there hasn't been another candidate in the Republican Party who has represented both the sort of fascist-level ideology. Also, they need to match and up the ante when it comes to the hate, as we've seen with your governor. And you don't need me to tell you because he's putting barbed wire in your river so that Mexican or any other kind of person trying to cross that river illegally drowns, maybe. If it's a child, drownings happen. He's also letting women essentially get close to or die because he won't allow them to have abortions when they are in the midst of sepsis, et cetera, et cetera. But this is very telling. And I wanted to point this out when I was listening to you talk, I talked to a Republican who was serving in the Trump administration in the department of Homeland security, named Miles Taylor and Miles Taylor told me something that actually shocked me because I hadn't considered this thought. I often think Republicans since Trump have actually gotten worse than he was in many ways because he kind of, he was, I always think of him as a black light. So he like shine this black light on all the things in the comforter in your hotel room, you don't want to think about. And those things came to life. And now those things have taken on a life of their own where they are now picking up where he left off. He wasn't going to actually do some of the things that Greg Abbott has done. He wasn't going. He thought about busing migrants to sanctuary cities. But his better instincts, let's just say, and his elect reelectability checked him on that. But Greg Abbott, Ron DeSantis, they don't have those same kind of restrictions on their fascism. So they're in many ways worse than he was, which is insane to consider, but you're neither one of them has the charm factor. Ron DeSantis is the weirdest Effing guy in the history of Republican politics. The guy eats pudding cups with his fingers in the corner of a room. This dude is weird. Greg Abbott is so dislikable. And
1: I so mean, we've all had a, a, a shameful oh. finger cup before in the corner. Oh, I mean, we've okay. all been there.
2: See for yourselves. I have never fingered a cup of pudding in you, my life. You don't, you know,
1: well. You, I thought applesauce. You, I don't like pudding. You know, but like, my mom forgot the spoon at lunch. She's gonna, you know, get it going. Never you never done 40, the medieval times
0: then.
2: Were you 47, 50 years old at the time? No, probably not. He's there.
0: Well, he's not. He's uh, I. I taught Tim way back when, so he's yeah. You and I are actually the same age, which is
2: to me is has to be at least forty-five. So I don't know. How which
0: is bizarre. Is. I mean, well, but anyway, you you were mentioning Texas. We we're talking about Texas, and so um, what That's I think is. World. <laughs> well what I, what's what's so funny about Texas, and I think what people nationally don't realize is that we're not this monolithic red state really um all of our major metropolitan areas, with the exception of Dallas, are blue every major
1: Dallas county went blue too it was I mean it was Tarrant County like, by a smidge that kept it from being right. that way yeah and, and Do in down here in Houston.
2: Didn't they just redistrict Texas? I thought that Dan Crenshaw's district got like less l- weird looking somehow. They did,
1: they did redistrict it because they were getting too many Republic They were getting too many Democrats in the bigger cities. They're like yes, they had to that. draw some really weird shapes exactly. to make sure that Dan Crenshaw stayed in office. <laughs> that's
0: what I thought. So I was yeah. The one I was going to bring up, and, and it might be you know, it's a sore subject for those of us in Texas. I I, I have enjoyed your uh, commentary from Becky Sue.
2: Oh yeah, Um,
0: (laughs) but part of that, you know, you're you're part of that's laughing is like, and part of the other part is that is that really what we sound like? I hope that's not what we sound like.
2: Yeah. No, she's just a nebulous. The reason she's Southern is because I can't pull off a Jersey accent and I wanted to make it someone that was easy for me to escape me when I was doing the character. And so, because I couldn't find another accent that it would really settle on, I I couldn't do British or anything else. It wouldn't make sense. So the one I could do that would help me get out of myself was Southern. It's not that she represents any specific geographic state or et cetera, et cetera. She's just everything I see as the hypocrisy of that cult embodied in one nebulous creature.
0: What's nuts about Texas though is Texas. I mean, with our gun laws and I swear the next step is compulsory carry. They're going to start finding us if we're not carrying a gun and, and I will never allow one in my home um it's just not gonna happen and and you know but geez but anyway yeah uh my daughter tried yeah my daughter well and and one of the things i wonder about in in gun control is like a key issue here and we and tim and i have talked about it but thing is we're talking about different issues nearly every week and i think Mm -hmm. one of the problems with democratic messaging is that we care about so many things and that's a great thing for humanity's sake to care about so many things but the right has a group that's like, we are, gu- we're pro-gun and that's it. And so they're going to write and they're going to call their Congress people and they're going to sit there and do this 24 seven. While we look at the last, you know, school shooting, because, you know, and, and, and I told this story on earlier podcast, but uh, the day after Uvalde, because Uvalde happened late in May and the day after Uvalde, uh, my daughter goes to school in a different district than where I teach. And she sent, you know, her mother and I a text saying, I'm in a chemistry closet. Uh, I'm okay for right now because somebody had brought a gun to school. Now her district does a pretty good job of communicating with parents, but those are about the longest 10 or 15 minutes, you know, we had in our entire life. Luckily the kid was too stoned to remember to bring bullets. (sighs) Or, you know, things would have been different. We had one kid bring a gun to school in our campus, you know, gosh, it was about five or six years ago. But luckily, you know, uh, somebody saw something, said something. But it's just so crazy, you know. And so, of course, you know, our local representatives and our, our favorite senator, Ted Cruz, his, you know, answer is door control. because i can't think of anything better than having one door to school because could anybody possibly imagine what could go wrong there
2: no i can't
0: think of anything whatsoever could go wrong in that instance but people sit there and buy this stuff and the problem we have as democrats is that in about two weeks that school shooting or mass shooting has been in our rearview mirror and we're looking at another issue Where we just don't have, I don't know if we have enough discipline to have a group of us sit there and say, you know what, we're going to do guns. Okay, this group over here, okay, y'all do the environment. Okay, this group over here, y'all do, you know, fighting against censorship. I mean, that's, I mean, we just don't have the discipline in our party.
2: I don't think that, and this is no offense to you at all, but I don't think that framing it that way is necessarily, in my opinion, accurate. I think that it's less about the discipline the Democrats have and more about the intentional sort of, um, what's, what did Steve Bannon say about unleashing the hoses or something, like there's flooding the zone. So there's the, the, the idea is that the Democrats who do actually care fundamentally about all of those things. Um, it's it's not really possible for like a, a, a faction of the Democratic Party to be like, we're gonna just be guns, because there might not be gun issues a couple of god forbid in this country this is true, but like for a couple of months at a time. And what are the gun democrats doing? They're like, oh shit, we don't have anything to do. The, you know, the immigration democrats are getting their asses kicked. Like we gotta do something about that, but we can't help them because we're the gun democrats. It's not realistic. It's it's more that the deluge of of constant crazy and- And and Greg Abbott's like response to things like Uvalde being to basically make Texas an open state carry, an open carry state without licenses or training or any of that shit. Like it's upside down, inside out and batshit crazy. And the Democrats are being intentionally bombarded with so much of this stuff that the idea is you can't handle anything successfully at one time because it's like trying to catch a million dodgeballs with two hands. You can't do it. Um, So I think the problem isn't necessarily that the the Democrats aren't focusing on the right things, because I do believe that they are. And I wanted to comment really quickly on um, the dissensus desensitization thing related to school shootings or any kind of shooting but i do think that it's it's very intentional we've seen this throughout history that the republicans and steve bannon pointed this out they know that if they just keep throwing crazy at all of us not just our legislators but the american people that it's really difficult to get your head above water
0: yeah i could buy that yeah i could buy that too i i think it's just um the the whole idea of arming teachers.
2: Oh,
0: I don't think there. they. Well, I, I, what I'm picturing is I'm picturing <laughs> Mr. Barzilla is missing his Glock. Has anybody seen Mr. Barzilla's Glock? Please return it to the office, please. I mean, you. I am the last person you want with a gun. Have you met But me? but, but, no. but well, and what they and what they taught us, and and we we they've started a program called Alice uh for our response to shooters and basically what they told us is that it's up to us what to do with our kids because if like if the gunman is like on the way on the end other, of the other school you know don't hunker down get the heck out if the gunman's in your hall you barricade the door you throw as much stuff as you can at them you know do the best you can but what they told us and this is what makes perfect sense and, and i don't think people understand this it says if you manage to subdue the gunman by no means do you ever pick up their gun. It says you put it under a trash can, you kick it away. Because when SWAT comes in, who's the good guy with the gun? And who's the bad guy with the gun? And that's what drives me. I mean, the gun argument just drives me nuts. Um, I mean, it's... I don't know.
1: But that's, that's what they do, though, right? Because all their gun arguments are, are dog shit. They just want to defend guns at the end of the day and that's that's all it's about and i think unfortunately that's what a lot a lot of our politics are about is where's your bread getting buttered you know if you went and looked at every one of these people who said a dumbass thing about the nra after a school shooting and look at their donations they've got a big fact check from the nra that they were r- running and campaigning on that money and it's just absolutely so obvious that these guys are just shills for these corporations but you know unfortunately there's enough on you know on on Unfortunately, with oil, right? They pay everybody. Oil and gas pays everybody, left and right. So that way they just go, oh, it's everybody. Lobbyists are good. And so it's they're able to just keep this system flowing. And, you know, at the end of the day, if you've got enough money, you could really make anything happen in this country. And it's just sad and it's sick and it's ridiculous that they can get away with it. But like there's really no way any of this is ever gonna like there's no I think we've shown there's no shooting bad enough. That's that's gonna change this. Like it's every time something tries to make a a a change, there's some dumbass governor somewhere who doubles down and says, "Fuck it, take free guns. You can everybody can have a free gun in my state. I, not only do you not need a permit, I'll give you one for free. Come on down, yeah. Tennessee. Go get them. Sponsored by Glock. You know that's like that's where we're headed next. Like it's not mandatory carry. It's free fucking guns. Like that's really where it's at. Like if you can't afford one, we'll give you one. And it's just because it's the publicity that you get like they're in the Republican Party. There is no bad press, like literally there's no bad press. And so these guys say outrageous shit. They're they're paid to say outrageous shit. And when they're done, like if they don't win their election, because all they did was say outrageous shit, then they get to go be a lobbyist and make a ton of more money and, and, and still say outrageous shit. And so it's just a system that we have set up. It's never going to change.
2: Or a TV pundit, but it's never gonna change if we don't start acknowledging and waking up to something you said in the beginning of your statement there, which was about the money. And it's not just the NRA's money, it's the money behind, and I know this as an educator, it's the money behind all those school drills, and that is a multi-billion dollar industry built on the backs of school shootings. So so you, you think like, oh, these people are advocating for safety for our kids. They don't want bad gunmen to come into our kids' classrooms and kill them. In the meantime, they don't exist as an industry if that's still not happening. You know, the, the, there is there is this bizarre mindset in this country that is this acquiescence to this violence. And it's crazy because it's like, well, we're not going to do anything about the thing that is actually responsible, which is the freaking gun, what we're going to do is accommodate it. We're going to build shelters out of classroom walls. We're going to give our teachers guns. We're going to teach our teachers not to hold the gun that the shooter used if, God forbid, in some strange scenario, fantastical scenario, you're able to disarm this person with a gun that will liquefy your insides in four seconds. You're supposed to disarm them, but then don't hold the gun. The whole system is upside down, inside, out, and backwards, and it's all based on money. And, and, and that speaks, again, like, go back to that desensitization thing, the reason we move on from these shootings. And I have talked to Fred Gutenberg. I've talked to Brett Cross. I've talked to parents who've lost their children who cannot fathom how society is just on to the next thing when their kids' guts are still on their desk all these years later. And that is true for Fred Gutenberg. Jamie's guts, her insides are still on the chair she was sitting in. I mean, this is insane. Actually, that wasn't Jamie. That was actually uh, somebody else's cousin. Jamie was killed in the hallway. Sorry, I'm getting my school shooting victims mixed up, which is a tragedy in and of itself. But again, everything is inside out, mixed up and upside down. And good, good Americans, I believe rational, empathetic, kind Americans, Americans like us, parents who do not want school shootings to be a reality we have to think about every single day are getting Again, back to the deluge thing, we're being inundated with these mixed messages that are forcing us to kind of like get numb to this stuff. And we can't, we can't.
0: When I was, you know, my, one of my first sub stacks, uh, and, and, you know, the Barzilla clan were famous for exaggeration. I mean, we can tell a great fish story. That's where the Republican party, I think has really got, you know, their application effect. So and this seeped into education last year. So last year we have, you know, we have the training videos that we have to do every year. So we have to do like you know, bloodborne pathogens. You have to do diabetes, which I'm sitting here, okay, I'm diabetic. I think I got this covered. You know, I don't no. need to do this anymore, but no, I still have to do it. So last year we had to do a child trafficking video oh of what to recognize when a student is being trafficked. It's like, do you fucking think they're going to school? Where there's a hundred adults, including a police officer, is this the? That's, the,
1: that's a whole nother conspiracy that, too. I can, be, I can point you to some well, great a great podcast about how. Uh, the 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 right uses child trafficking and all that stuff to to well, it's basically traf- push through shit. That's just not true. Yeah, yeah. It's not true. It's simply the, if the if there me. were five hundred thousand ch- children being kidnapped a year, I think you fucking noticed. I think you would know some kids who were missing. If five hundred thousand a year went fucking missing, we'd all be like, "Hey, I know a kid who got kidnapped and sold in Mexico." Because there's five hundred thousand people a year being kidnapped. Well, but it's so, not fucking true. So this what
0: happened during the pandemic. One of the arguments down here was we should not make kids wear masks because if they wear a mask, they will not be able to scream if they're being abducted in the HEB parking lot. And so, you know, I know somebody real well. I'm not going to mention their name because I don't want to embarrass them, but I had them. I I did the exact same thing what Tim was talking about. I said he was going on and on and on about child trafficking. He's like, well, do you know anybody who was child trafficked? And he was like, no. Hmm. have you heard of anybody who was child trafficked no do you know anybody who knows anybody who was child trafficked Oh well, no it's like and, and of course he he figured it out he changed the subject to something else and deflected but you know, we had to watch this video and it's like you know the trafficker with a heart of gold i want you know my sex slave to be educated I mean, really? Is this, is this where we're at? I mean, it's crazy. And I mean, I was watching a video once where I saw somebody that said that um, 20% of the country was transgender. It's like 20%. That's uh. you you know what The, the whole idea of grooming makes sense. If our numbers are that skewed, if we really believe that that's really the case, but I can sit there and say, I know kids who have, transitioned at our school i've been there for 10 years i can count them on one hand and they're scared you know actually all of us on the faculty we are breaking texas law every day because the, the law is is that if i know somebody has transitioned or is transitioning that i have to turn them in the parents into cps that's the law there is no way in hell i'm turning that in because you can see the fear on their face because they know that we know and they just want to be seen for who they are. And most of the teachers I know there you know there are a few that are that are asses, but most of the teachers I know are very caring understanding people. doesn't mean we're grooming kids. it just means that we want to you know we want to treat kids well because I mean it's the it's the scariest time of your life.
2: Yeah, I, w- I wanted to just kind of. I was looking for the tweet because um, my good friend Alejandro Caraballo, she's a trans activist and she's amazing. And she put up a tweet the other day that, that specifically cited what happens to, what has happened to several children nationwide who went to, who were, who were outed by their teachers to their parents and were murdered by their parents who didn't the reason they didn't go to their parents the reason they went to their teachers because let's be honest our kids are doing that for a reason right those kids were forced were forced out to their parents and their parents killed them she cited four different stories i can't find them at the moment i will find them she cited four different stories in four different states and she said specifically this is why we are afraid that if you do this that it will get children and young adults killed. Here it is. This is why requiring teachers and medical professionals to out LGBTQ youth to their parents is dangerous. I'm sorry. Nevada father murdered son for being gay. Former foster mom claims. Woman pleads guilty in murder of son eight, thought to be gay. Man charged with killing boy 10, who reportedly came out as gay. Um, North Hill's father killed, charged with killing son for being gay. So we are going one way or the other, to be killing these young kids, either because we're forcing them to expose their truth to parents who are not accepting, or we're going to deny them medication and things like that, where they can live their authentic lives, and then they're going to commit suicide. It's absolutely insane, out of control, completely out of control. It has jumped the shark. This is Crazy! It is absolutely fascism, but it's also designed to eradicate transgender people and homosexuals. I fully believe that, truly, a- one thousand percent.
1: Absolutely, and, and Joanne, I know you're you're kind of tight on time, so I do want to make sure we give you a chance to, um, to to hit your scumbag this week. We always like to make sure that our our guests have the opportunity to, um, you know, call something out or, or let people know who their honorary scumbag is this week. And I want to make sure we we gave you yeah. enough time to do that.
2: Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. I love the idea that Trump isn't a scumbag because he's not a human being. And when I was a kid, I used to say scumbag all the time. And I used to say jerk off as an insult and I didn't know why. My dad was like, you can't say that. Do you want to See, say I that? See, I
1: love it. It's a Jersey thing. It's a, there's a couple guys I listen to in a podcast. You start calling people scumbags. And I'm like, I like it, you know, because I'll no, call people an mf'er, and then people get mad at me when I say that word. And so I'm like, well, you know, scumbag really handles it. Well, so we, we have
0: the whole and the whole thing in the South I love because we have the phrases that sound Nice but hard. Yeah. Like I'll yeah, pray yeah. for you. That's not that's yeah. not a nice thing. Or you all know, bless your yeah. heart, not a nice thing. But yeah. you know, people no. think that you know, hey, you're being nice to me. It's like, no, not really.
2: Exactly. That is what I love about the South too. It's very, it's like kind of like a wink and a nod, like, oh yeah, bless your heart. And, and Jersey, it's definitely more uh let's say unfiltered. Scumbag is a word that I use often, but I know that um as a kid, I was like, wait, it's a what? But anyway, I digress. So I think. Uh, My scumbag of the week is not going to be all that surprising because it's going to be Ron DeSantis because not only is Ron DeSantis not only did Ron DeSantis try and scramble on uh, this whole upside to slavery, but it really it was a benefit that they were able to get skills because God knows that they were just sitting on the side of you know, the African coast just like skillless and waiting for some white people to come pick them up and teach them how to blacksmith. I mean, they didn't look for the slaves that had the most skills. By any means, they didn't do that. But Ron DeSantis has actually taken that ridiculous notion and doubled and tripled down on it to the point where I call him Lord Farquaad of Florida because he has the the, the narcissistic thin skin of Lord Farquaad and he also matches him in sort of stature. But Kamala Harris had the audacity to go to his state and call him out on his BS and he's very offended. So he put together a little letter that was so condescending in nature that I just want to smack his little pudding fingers off his hand. And um, he said he wanted her to meet with himself and his curriculum director, who is that crazy and abducted a 14 year old girl from a reservation when Kamala took care of it she dropped the mic but Ron DeSantis is my scumbag of the let's call it month in this case
0: yeah I think that's a common one I think we, we I, I don't think that that was that yours to last week or you went with the actual programmers that that were you know doing
1: the crazy yeah yeah I think I I think it was Prager you um, yeah, yeah, I I, uh, I just listened to a fantastic podcast it's called The Audit, um, where they literally went through and and broke down like episodes of PragerU stuff, like episode by episode, and it was just phenomenal. They'd bring a comedian on and be like, "Hey, have you ever watched PragerU? No? Well, you're about to." And then like, here's the story about Abe Lincoln, and it's just like, you it's just it's like you're just sitting are like what? Like this is this is not true. Like this is this is a lie. It's just like over and over and over again. Uh, and so it's, it's phenomenal, but yeah, I hate PragerU. Long (laughs) story short. All right, Tim,
0: uh, do you want to take yours next?
1: Well, uh, you go ahead, Scott. I, I, I sent Uh, you that, uh, link.
0: So Tim sent me something and, and, and actually this is something I knew being down here in Houston. So Houston independent school district, uh, which was taken over by the Texas education agency because one of their high schools was low performing. This is a district with well over a hundred schools. One not performing, so they, they're taken over by the state. Thank you. Uh, they've ended up firing six hundred, or I guess I guess laying off six hundred administrators. Uh, one of them is my cousin. She had to end up going uh, flying. Thank God she got a job in Katy. But so what HISD does is HISD they bring you in for a common interview and this is you know something again tim sent this to me that you know somebody referenced on twitter as a whole long thing and they interview you for basically a generic position and you interview for the generic position they won't tell you what campus it is they won't tell you what position it is they won't you know do any of these things and they'll bring you in to sign the contract and then they'll go like oh you're going to the worst school in the district and oh by the way you can't transfer this, uh, this has been a practice that's been going on for years. And this actually happened to me. I was teaching in Deer Park, which is kind of where our plants are. And a week before we were supposed to return to school, they called me and three other teachers in. Oh, by the way, you're in this new program where you're going to teach all repeat freshmen. Thank you very much. Well, in the state of Texas, there are rules that you cannot resign Oh, uh, and, uh, by mid-July pretty much is the last time you can resign the, the district can actually hold you legally hold you to your contract if you resign after that point usually if you get a promotion they'll let you go uh, but, they'll, but pretty much a lot of them will sit there and say no you're going to stay in your spot until we find somebody else and so they purposely waited until the last minute and so none of the four of us could resign and they only had enough funding for this program for one year. So after that one year, they said goodbye to all of us. That was lovely. So, you know, I was out, you know, didn't have a job. Luckily I was able to find another one, you know, for the next year. But uh, this is a common practice of, you know, basically just, you know, we're not going to tell you anything here. You have to sign. And it's, it's definitely a scumbag move. Uh, and uh, thanks to Tim for sending that my way, but I already knew that. So. That's why I don't teach at HISD.
2: HISD is a big book banner, too.
1: Yeah, they're uh, they're one of the bigger ones in the in the state. They're
2: in the country. Yeah, I think they may actually lead the country. I think they may actually surpass Ron DeSantis in terms of the number, the sheer number of books banned. It's crazy. And I think one of your schools, maybe wrong districts, did away with librarians or libraries. I forget which one. Is that possible? Maybe I'm confused.
0: Uh, I still have them, but this is what I don't get. What I don't get about all that is like, call up your libra- your school librarian, email your school librarian, and say, "I don't want my kid reading X Y Z book." I'm sure they'll accommodate you. Our, li- our librarians are very, you know, very nice people. Uh, you know, so actually, you know, one of them's conservative, but she'll she doesn't believe in censorship. You know, so she'll let you read whatever you want to read. So I'm sure if you called her up and said, hey, I don't want, you know, a junior reading this book. Okay. It works works for me. I mean, most of the stuff we read in English, I'm in English classrooms now, we do lit circles. So the kids choose their book. So really – I mean, it, it's a much ado about nothing and that's one of my big pet peeves with the people in education they get a video from their, their cousin jethro in cleveland texas who works at the stop and go sent them a youtube video he can't seem to source and so they're, they're teaching this to the school it's like why don't you fucking ask me i'm actually mm-hmm. in the schools i can tell you what we actually teach but no, no. don't want to do that you know that that would be like you know actual research
1: yeah. And and this week, Scott, my scumbag is actually one. You know, the reason that that shit happens, and it's it's a it's a dual faceted scumbag. It's two. It's a combination of Ben Shapiro and Alex Jones. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I you could not pay me to listen to an episode of Infowars. Couldn't do it. But what I do listen to is Knowledge Fight, which is a fantastic um, breakdown of just his lunacy and all the other things that go on. And this guy could not be more in love with the, the Sound of Freedom movie that's out there right now. To the point where, like, if anybody says anything about it, he will literally out you on his show to the point where people get death threats. Just because they tell the truth about a film that is QAnon bullshit. And so, you know, he literally had someone, like, he literally was pulling quotes from someone who just wrote a, a review of the movie. And, you know, called him a Satanist, said he was, like, cool with eating kids And all this other stuff. And then you've got, on the other side of it, you've got Ben Shapiro, who, you know, let's say you're a conservative with a daughter, and your daughter's pumped about the Barbie movie, but you follow Ben Shapiro. Your daughter's not seeing fucking Barbie anymore, because that guy is pissed about the Barbie movie, because they talk about patriarchy. Like, that guy like i i can't imagine how miserable his wife's life is just because like he doesn't even think like women can have pleasure or deserve pleasure or are just there to serve him what i'm assuming is like boiled chicken every night because like he just looks like a guy who does not use salt and pepper but like come on this guy's life has got to be terrible his family life has got to be terrible like, I've never seen someone look so pissed to go to a movie. The picture he posted of like having to go watch Barbie, and then he goes and buys what fifty Barbies and lights them on fire. Like, hey, dumb fuck, you still paid for fifty Barbies. Like, uh, I was gonna mention though,
0: my daughter went to see the Barbie movie. Would you like? I can't wait to see it. Can't wait to see it. Do you want to know who she? Do you know who want to know who she went with? You? (laughs) No, she went with her church youth group. That's fun so yeah, no we we're you know we're I guess maybe a little bit more progressive down like
1: here, Anyone um, uh, who actually cares like Barbie's a a not a terrible role model right, like there's like all different types of careers for Barbie, like my nine year old stepdaughter has like a Barbie book where one day Barbie's like a a vet and she's a lawyer, and she's all this like I mean, okay, you could talk about like body stereotypes, but other than that, like Barbie is a quote-unquote positive influence on young girls. So, like, if you really want to sit there and, and complain that your wife doesn't want to stay in the kitchen for you, like, maybe she worry about spending all that Barbie money on a time machine and go back to, like, eighteen ninety nine, and then you can get what you want. But instead, you, you bought 50 Barbies and lit them on fire. Well, you know. I mean,
2: yeah, I just think Ben is an incredibly unexceptional person who really yeah. wants i mean really 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 there's so much. i call him small and i don't mean that like pedantically he's actually like small in every way and i think that like this is his shtick because it makes the guy who went to home depot and put a tiny little two by four in a plastic bag feel you know masculine or manly and he also by the way went to the barbie movie dressed as ken so we're just gonna park that there but yeah, I, I, I feel you on that bed, being this scumbag.
0: We, we've <laughs> loved having you. And I was going to say that um, it, it, we love how much fun you're having online, you know, uh, going after these folks. And, and I'm not going to speak on behalf of Tim. I'll speak on behalf of myself. I'm sorry I don't look like Eric Swalwell.
2: You're not supposed to tell. You were sworn to secrecy. No one is supposed to tell Eric <laughs>
0: uh yeah. So I, I want there, to apologize for that. <laughs> uh, but I don't know if you're a South Park fan.
2: um I love South Park. I couldn't cite much. I've watched it a lot, but not recently. But I love South Park. I saw the movie when it was out the first time. Yeah.
0: So yeah, I, I'm. I get to go to Tom's rhinoplasty on Thursday for a surgical procedures. You know, so maybe they can make me look like Eric Swalwell. And, you know, life will be much better.
2: <laughs> so we'll see. Well, I mean, who knows? I don't look like Kate Upton. So, <laughs> you know, it, it is what it is. And you guys got your pitcher back today. So congratulations, I guess. Is that the way you say that? Congratulations on getting Rielander back? I don't know.
0: Oh, we're happy. Uh, I, yeah. th- I think Tim's pretty happy, too. Um, but I- I'm, I I'm very happy. happy. I don't uh, think he, um,
2: I don't think New York was his whole. I just it wasn't his scene. It was never going to be, even though he's from this area. I don't think it
1: was him. He likes to win, you know, guy like guy likes to win. The Astros taught him what it feels like to be a winner, and he doesn't want to lose. Yeah,
0: and, the, and the first game he will pitch will be against the Yankees.
2: I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, <laughs> I know. Um,
0: but thanks
2: I, for I th- taking the opening
0: <laughs> But uh, yeah, and, uh, we have fun, you know, the uh, the Yankee fans that come to Houston. You know, we've had fun with them in, in the in the, in the the stands. You know, they're I, I the Yankee fans are nowhere near, you know, the top of my hit list. I think mine, you know, probably with Tim, uh, Dodger fans are pretty high up on that hit list. And, and Philadelphia fans are just miserable. Philadelphia, I mean, they boot Santa Claus. Oh, I, hate all I, don't Philadelphia. I
2: don't hate them. I don't hate you, Philadelphia fans. I just don't. I don't love
1: Philadelphia. Dodger uh, and the Yankees fans are on a tie that my – Least favorite. I gotta be honest with you. I've been to Yankee well, Stadium gotta, for enough gotta, time. Go. I've seen some shit in Yankee Stadium. I'm I'm good. But, and uh, I was
2: at the playoff game when Ted Cruz showed up, and let me tell you, I am not a fan of Houston fans in general. But that was a particularly tense game. Cause-
0: I could see that. I could see that. Well, you know, the people who travel are kind of a different breed of fan, anyway. You know, That's so it. you know, but. We have it has been an absolute pleasure having us uh, having you with us tonight and and, um, and Wednesday when you're hearing this episode and you know if we can return the favor in any way you know please let us
1: know.
2: Thank you. This was so fun. I really appreciate. It. I'm sorry I'm short on time. Um, oh
1: no worries, no worries. We appreciate um, you joining us.
2: Yeah, my my daughter's coming down with what we think are migraines. We're not really sure. We're gonna get it checked out, but she doesn't feel so good.
1: But, well, you know. Hi
0: one thing we all have in common, we all have children. So, you know, we yeah. kind of know, you know, we want to make a better world for them and you know that's definitely part of it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's why I appreciate you guys. I'm glad to have gotten to talk to you. I know you're both dads and I know that um, people, a lot of people think that they can think whatever they want that like somebody like me is just out there for clicks or whatever. Um, but I'm not, that's not what I'm doing. It's my way of, I can't help one child at a time necessarily find their voice, but I can help kind of ensure and protect what I leave behind for my own children. And I know that, that you guys share that passion. So I appreciate that. Not for Absolutely. my kids for years. <laughs> well, you <don't. laughs>
0: well, yours yeah. too. We, well, you know, we want yeah. every kid yeah. to have a
1: good, yeah. Exactly. Well, hey, we appreciate you. We're going to take a quick break right here and we'll come back on the other side and talk a little bit of the MLB trade deadline. We'll be right back on the snap hook after this. Welcome back after the break. And Scott, what a break it was. I I sent you a text uh, as we were wrapping up that that conversation with Joanne. And and again, thank you so much to Joanne for coming on to join us. But I didn't want to put it in the the group chat. I didn't want to distract from what was going on. But, you know, I sent you a text. Fromber, three outs away from a no-no. And as we take our break, Fromber... Valdez is able to throw his first no-hitter and the first lefty no-no in Astros history. Scott, what a night for the Houston Astros. Well, and not only that, but uh, he actually,
0: uh, that was a Greg Maddox. That was a Maddox. I don't know if you've ever heard of that stat.
1: Is it, uh, what is a Maddox? Maddox is a complete game
0: in less than 100 pitches.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: So, I mean, yeah. I think he was at about ninety. I think so. You know, that's not shouldn't be too taxing for him in the future uh, because you hate those, like you know, we we've mentioned Johan Santana in a past episode, or you know, where the Mets just absolutely ground him, you know, to you know, try to get their first no hitter in their history, and he was just never the same guy after that. And I think it was like one hundred forty or one hundred fifty pitches, I want to say. Uh, so, thank God, you know, Framer was able to get through. You know, and, and and really the big key too is that you know at no point did they even have to get a guy up, and so that's a night off for the bullpen. You know, the bullpen's been pretty, pretty taxed lately, so definitely, and, and you got to know those guys are pumped up because of the news that we got earlier today.
1: Yeah, ninety three total pitches for for Fromber Valdez, sixty five of which were strikes. Um, you know, a great sign because Fromber hadn't been great lately he had a good start before the all-star game uh was rough against texas they've still found a way to get the win but when fromber's at his best he's pitching a contact and you know, he's getting soft contact and that's what he did tonight only seven k's um you know he's a ground ball machine he turns out ground balls and and that's what he was able to do you know he was able to to he faced the minimum i mean at the end of the day he threw a no-hitter he faced the minimum um one walk an unbelievable, an unbelievable night to cap off a great day. Right, you mentioned Astros got some fantastic news earlier. They reacquired Justin Verlander coming back to Houston. Um, it, and and to cap the night off like this, it's it's a fantastic day uh, in the seven one three. Scott,
0: absolutely, and and truly really to make uh, to to kind of give y'all uh, pay off the details of the trade. Uh, The Astros trade their first and their fourth best prospects as ranked by MLB.com. And one of the things I've always wanted to say with trades, because people always sit there and say, well, I don't understand why this team was able to get this guy and we weren't able to get this guy. Everybody in baseball values prospects differently. So, you know, when the Mets are looking at our system, they ended up getting Drew Gilbert, who was the number one prospect in our system. But the thing is, is that, you know, the Astros are pretty stacked with outfielders right now. So, you know, and and even in their system, they're pretty stacked. And the Mets are paying for more than half of his contract. That is huge. Because, you know, when it starts time, we start talking about a Kyle Tucker extension, or talks talking about a Framer extension, especially after tonight, that's not out of the realm of possibility. Where if you have been paying Justin Verlander the full ref rate of his contract, that wouldn't have been able, that wouldn't be possible. But I love this trade for the emotional impact it's going to have. These guys love Justin Verlander. for Justin Verlander is a veteran that they leaned on. And you got to think that, you know people like you know fromer especially because he's such an emotional guy but also christian javier they're only going to benefit from having that veteran leadership in the clubhouse you know he's a guy that they could go to you know that they could lead on you know and maybe you know if christian javier can take his game up a tick then that you look at this staff you have to look at this staff really differently if Christian Javier can turn things around, because I don't know how long, much longer J.P. France is going to be able to pitch at this level. Uh, if he's pitching a little bit above his skis at this point, if you look at like uh, numbers like XERA, uh, which is uh, basically a, a stat of what your ERA should be based on your contact, his ERA, his XERA is over four, where his ERA actually ERA is under three. So there's probably some regression that's going to happen there. Hunter Brown it's approaching, you know, some innings limits. So you get her Keeney back, you got a six man rotation there and you can kind of spread those guys out a little bit, especially if you have some days off. And maybe, you know, you can limp your way through the year, and maybe take this division again. You know, before today, I didn't know if that was going to happen.
1: Yeah, especially you know I think we'll get to it a little bit later, but the Rangers made some big time moves, and if if the Astros did do something, uh, it w- it was wild card all the way in my opinion. But they did what they had to do, and you mentioned a couple things there that I think are going to be huge. Well, first and foremost, Verlander's been fantastic in his last seven starts. His ERA below two. Um, he's he's been going deeper into ball games. He went eight innings um, right after the All Star break, and and really has been just fantastic. <laughs> so you're getting a guy who's trending well, right? And that's number one. Number two, you mentioned the, the, the money that's being covered. The reason the Astros didn't re-sign this guy, everybody wanted him back. He's got a great relationship with great Jim Crane. He loved being here. He was going to get paid out the wazoo, and he wanted that third year that the Astros weren't willing to give him because they had guys like Tucker, like Fromber, that needed to get extended. Well, now 52 of the $95 million remaining are, are being covered by the Mets. And so when you look at, yeah, you gave up a couple of top prospects, but you – you use those prospects to to worth $52 million done, take it all day because prospects don't always pan out. Forrest Whitley was a top prospect. John Singleton was a top prospect. Jared Kozart was a top prospect. Where are those guys now? You know, one's playing triple A, the other one's hurt and the other one's out of baseball. So at the end of the day, prospects don't mean anything until they get to the big leagues. And that's what really, really matters. Uh, Another thing that you mentioned too, Scott, you mentioned the effect to, to, J.P. France to Fromber, uh, to those guys, I I am excited to see what this does for Hunter Brown. We saw the tandem of those two guys being able to work together. You know, Hunter Brown soaking up all that knowledge from Verlander. This is only going to make Hunter Brown a better pitcher. Um, Hunter Brown likes to pitch like Verlander. So being able to to go over stats, to go over that stuff with Justin, and we've got two more years of him past this year. That's going to be huge for Hunter Brown's development and a guy who's already shown some great flashes this year, it's going to be fantastic. And now, lastly, you know, I think our bullpen, we did get one piece in Graveman, and we'll, we'll continue to talk about that. But one of the things that that 2017 team had was a abundance of good starting pitching and maybe not a great bullpen. Well, that's what this team has here, right? You've got an abundance of really good starting pitching when you only need three, maybe four starters in the playoffs. Okay, we'll move JP France to the bullpen move Hunter Brown to the bullpen. Those guys can give you an inning in the sixth or the seventh inning, and then you don't have to worry about Montero as much. You don't have to worry about Stanek as much because you've got Abreu, you've got Graveman, you've got Neris, and you've got um, Presley. And then, hey, J.P. France can come in and give you a good inning. Hunter Brown can come in and give you a good inning in the playoffs. So the the moves that, that Dana Brown made uh, today and, and over the weekend have, have really, I think, strengthened this Astros team.
0: I think this move has Jim Crane written all over it. Um, obviously, the money involved you know, has to involve him. Uh, but I think he's the one that pushed this over the, the finish line. Because I could probably, you know, Dana Brown, he loves prospects. And so the idea to him of giving up your first and your fourth best prospect probably was not something he wanted to do. But Sunday, Verlander won his 250th Major League game. He's the only active pitcher now with 250 wins. No, I don't think he's getting to 300 wins. I, I don't think that's happening. But he's—he has said he wants to pitch as long as Nolan Ryan pitched, and if that's the case, yeah, he's definitely getting to 300 wins. But the whole thing is, is that—and I've said this about you know guys like Altuve, guys like you know, well Correa before him, but you know, guys if they could finish their career in an Astros uniform. Obviously, Verlander didn't start here, but he's won two world. He's won two rings. He's won two Cy Youngs. He's got this year and two more years. If he wins a third ring here, or God forbid, discovers the Fountain of Youth and wins a third Cy Young here, he's an Astro. When he's going into Cooperstown, he's an Astro, folks. And That's
1: the, the conversation whole- I have with my dad today. You know, if, if he gets another ring here, at what point does he go in as an Astro instead of a Tiger?
0: Yeah. And, and the whole thing is, is that it, it gives you more cachet as a franchise when you can. And, and I don't think that you can put any kind of a dollar sign on that. But when you can have conversations like you and I have had about, gee, who was better between Craig Biggio and Jose Altuve? Well, you know, I think we both agreed that, you know, given the playoff performance, Jose Altuve. But, you know, that's a conversation worth having. If you're a bad franchise, you don't have those conversations because you don't have the guys in your history, you know, that you could do that with. But, you know, when you could sit there and say, oh, who's the best Astro of all time? Is it Bagwell? Is it Altuve? Is it Biggio? The, I mean, these are worthwhile conversations. Who's the best pitcher to ever wear an Astro's uniform? And you can sit there and talk about, oh, gee, is it Nolan Ryan? Or gee, is it, you know, Justin Verlander? Gee, is it Roger Clemens? I mean, these are, these are huge conversations. And the whole thing is that This is where your sports cities like St. Louis continue to draw. St. Louis sucks this year. They're still drawing because the Cardinals have built up over decades. Just, you know, a love affair with the city and a love affair with their fans. And this is the road that we're on with the Astros. And now we've extended that window through at least 2024.
1: You mentioned, you know, I, I do think the Astros and the city of Houston have a pretty special relationship. I I don't think it's maybe at the at the level of St. Louis, but I do think Houston is a baseball city. I, I really do. You know, I, I think you could take out maybe the dark years out of there. Um, but Minute Maid Park is consistently full. And they were, you know, for the early 2000s and the mid 2000s. Again, take out the 100 lost years. But like. I don't know. I, I feel like, especially you know, Thursday through Saturday nights, the the park is full. Sunday day games gets a good crowd. Uh, I, I'd like to think Houston's got a pretty, um, pretty strong baseball community, and, and and being the only being the biggest show in town, right? For I, I went, what, five years without a football team, uh, really elevated that team because at the time the Rockets were garbage. You know, Hakeem was was playing in Toronto, uh, and Kelvin Cato was your main draw at that time, and so. Um, you know the Astros really were the biggest show in town, and you had Bijo and you had Bagwell, and maybe I'm looking at it through a kid who loved baseball's lenses growing up, but I, I feel like Houston is a baseball city, and I feel like very few. I, I think you can put us in that in that conversation with with Boston, with uh, with St. Louis, with uh, Cincinnati as, as some of the best stadiums and fans to visit in the major leagues.
0: I was going to say, I think Moochie Norris just fell off his couch. if uh, you say the Stevie?
1: Stevie. <laughs>
0: well, and the funny thing is, is that I was so the Rockets championships happened right after high school for me. So I remember watching those. I remember we're having house parties. We drove around with brooms for the second championship outside of car because we swept the, the the magic. But I don't think the city collectively had as special a feeling after those titles as they did after the Astros won theirs. Um, and that's nothing against the Rockets. I, uh, you know, those were great moments, great teams. Uh, I have to wonder if the Texans ever win a Super Bowl. I have to think, like, maybe that's a bigger you know, bigger draw. That's you know. the
1: one I don't know, right? Like, if the Texans win a Super Bowl, what does that feel like compared to... It'll no, Nothing will ever match 2017. I don't believe any championship ever can ever come close to the feeling of, you know, surviving a hurricane as a city than having to play a home series in Tampa and then having people watch, watch the game in their backyard on an extension cord because their house is destroyed, right? Like, those images will... They still get to me when I think about them now. Um, nothing will ever match that. I don't care what the Texans do. But the 2022 one, that one I love because it was a big you to everybody else. But, like, the, a Texan Super Bowl, I think, is really the only thing that could, could come close to that second World Series. Well, 2017, during the ALCS, we were at the Gothathon.
0: So, it was like a huge watch party. You know, when we were in, that was game seven. And, you know, watching McCullers just throw like, what was it, like 9,000 consecutive curveballs
1: 23 watching, straight curveballs. Watching the
0: watching the Yankees fans complain, oh, they know, you know, but they know what pitch is coming because the trash can is like, he threw 23 fucking straight curveballs. Guess what, guys? I think a curveball's
1: coming. Yeah, still I think connected. McCullers could have stood on the mound and said, curveball. And, and they still would be, it. yeah they still I would was in I was in Yankees territory watching that game. I was in Greenwich, Connecticut at a wedding. Um, I was the only I was the only Astros fan, non Yankees fan in a bar. And they tried to turn the game off because they said we were being too loud because it was like a hotel bar. I was like I was like, you look around this room right now, eighty five percent of the people in here all have the last name Costello. We are your money tonight. Turn that fucking game back on.
0: Well, you know what? I think the biggest single, I mean, this, this, we're diving off on a tangent here, but Marwan Gonzalez's home run in game two, uh, game two of that World Series. Oh, yeah. Was the biggest single moment because think about what you're thinking as a Houston fan. You lose game one, you're losing game two. What's your thought? Your thought is immediately, oh, shit, this is going to happen again. We're going to lose this thing. We're going to lose the series and, you know, every, everything's going to be, you know, about all how much, you know, the the Astros just, you know, choke or can't come up big. But yeah, when we won that game, everybody started believing, you know, this, this thing can happen. Then of course, after game two, George Springer starts getting hot. You know, that's, that's basically all she wrote. But so you mentioned the Rangers, um, so, taking away the emotion of the Verlander trade, who do you think did better at the deadline? The Astros with Graveman and Verlander? Or the Rangers with Jordan Montgomery, Max Scherzer? And uh, who was that reliever they got? Keralta that- the
1: Chapman, Joe well, Bar- uh I mean, because you got to include Chapman in it, right? So they yeah. get Montgomery, Scherzer, Stratton. They also uh, traded for Austin Hedges. Yeah, Stratton uh, and, and Spencer, uh, uh, uh Yeah, so Hedges, Stratton, Scherzer, Montgomery, and um, uh, I just said his name. Um, lefty that we own. Jordan Montgomery. Oh, no, Chapman. Chap- Chapman. There you go. Well, you know, yeah, that
0: was funny. I, I don't know if that I, – I just wasn't – I don't think of those as deadline-type deals, you know, when it happens like weeks in advance. But I guess you have to consider that. But I think you can make a definite argument baseball-wise. The Rangers did more. Um, but I just don't know about the emotional lift. Because I don't know if you saw the interviews with Graveman. Graveman was ecstatic. Yeah, he was very happy.
1: He said he was like he was coming home, is what he said. And,
0: and I think, you know, he if you look at his numbers, uh, his XERA is higher than his actual ERA, but this is one of those cases where the decision scientists, they have a way of, of working with these guys. And so, you know, have these pitching coaches, maybe they found something, or maybe they can find something, and he's going to be here again next year which I think is huge. I mean, I, I, neither of these guys are rentals. You're, they're going to be a part of the, the group next year.
1: I'm going to be honest with you, Scott. It's it's maybe a weak answer, but I, I think it's a tie simply because I think both clubs did exactly what they needed, right? I think when you look at the Rangers, their their offense has been fantastic this season. But I think going into the season, everybody knew they were light on pitching. They were not going to be good enough. And And when DeGrom hasn't been as – as healthy as you would have liked, that was a big hit. You know, and now Evaldi's gone to the to the IL today as well. So they needed pitchers. And they went out and got pitchers. You know, at the end of the day, they did not have the arms to compete with Houston going into the trade deadline. Um I still think our front end starters are better than their front end starters, but at least hey, they 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 did what they needed to do to say we we did everything we had this year. We we figured this was a shot and we took it. Um, Scherzer's having a little bit of a down year, but, you know, we've seen Matt Scherzer turn it to a new level in the playoffs before. So that's a guy that always scares me come October. Um, you know, Montgomery, um, those guys, you know, Stratton, things like that. Time will tell and we'll see, um, we'll see what they have and what they can bring. But I think getting Scherzer and getting Aroldis Chapman too, um, I, I, think, were good moves. They made fantastic moves, but again, the Astros did what they needed to do. They needed a front end starter and they needed a high leverage reliever and they went and got those two things. I think we're going to see John Singleton, maybe a September call up. I hope it's sooner, but I think you realize you didn't need that left-handed back. Cause it's in triple a is what I'm hoping uh, that Dana Brown realized, but also he maybe just ran out of, he ran out of bullets in his gun. I don't know. Um, but I think, you were able to keep jokes, which if you were gonna if you were gonna lose Gilbert, you were able to keep jokes. Okay, you got a guy who's major league tested. So, I I, I give both both teams an, an A, a solid A, because I think both teams did exactly what they needed to do to make this a tight race down the stretch.
0: I think what uh, I think what was funny about the deadline, and, and I don't know if you you noticed this as well, but there were no high end hitters that were traded. Not a one. There were some decent guys. Like, you know, the Marlins picked up Josh Bell. Okay. You know, he, you know he's he been good in the past. And well, I guess he's okay. You know, they traded out Garrett Cooper. So it's like you traded for Bell but traded Cooper. You know, they got a, a nice hitter for the White Sox. You know, Burger is okay. Um, I think the team that, you know, probably impressed me the most is I think uh, – nobody likes sellers at the deadline but you know the Mets i think did a pretty good job of getting some talent you know for some expensive pieces yeah they're paying a hefty a price for verlander you know they're paying a hefty part of that salary but you know they got rid of scherzer they got rid of verlander they got some good prospects coming back i mean they were able to trade you know a few of their you know tradable pieces like I think they had ended up trading about five or six guys, you know, when it all, uh, you know, came down. And I, you know, I had a feeling the Mets weren't going to do anything this year. Something was going to derail them. Uh,
1: but you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah, it's. It's the most Mets thing ever. They spend a lot of money. They go out. They don't do what they're supposed to do. But I agree with you. I think they did a nice job of, of getting back some good pieces. Um, they're probably a couple years from being able to compete again. And so we know that they have the money to go out and spend. And, you know, at the end of the day, if it doesn't work, get rid of it. Get some prospects. They've got the top one of the top prospects in the Rangers system from Serger. they got two of the Astros' top prospects. Uh, you know, if two of these guys can hit, you've got some good, solid major leaguers. And then you can fill the roster around them. Uh, there's still some expensive talent on that roster. So this off season, you know, if they want to move a guy like Lindor, if they want to move Pete Alonso this off season, they can still do that and still bring in more pieces. Um, so I think they did a nice job. I'm a little surprised maybe at the Orioles, Scott, that they didn't, uh, maybe didn't go get a veteran or a, a big time starter or help them down the stretch. I, I think there was some word that they were in on some of these guys, Um, but everybody wanted Jackson holiday and he was an absolutely non-starter for, for Baltimore. So um, we'll, we'll see if they have enough uh, talent on their, their young roster to be able to compete down the stretch with the Rays. And and if they do in October,
0: I think it's interesting because, you know, uh, Elias comes from the same tree, you know, and same kind of background as Luno, And there was that, and there was that, uh, that fear back in 2015, where, you know, Lunau's great at stockpiling prospects, but you know, can he make trades? In 2015, you remember there were two trades that they made that did not work out well. And so I think Elias probably saw that he's like, I don't want to give up on like a Josh Hader type prospect and get back, you know, trash like Carlos Gomez. They still got Jack Flaherty. So, I mean, they didn't do nothing. Um, but that's going to be you know where Mike Elias is at, and 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 I understand it. Maybe in the off season when they have a little bit more time to evaluate some of these things, you know, they may can, maybe can add another veteran or two for next year. Uh, that's you know, that's the hard thing about the deadline. You're 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 kind of making moves with a gun to your head, and, and some of these are you know franchise altering moves. I was surprised that they didn't go to Seattle and get Logan uh, Gilbert. You know, for a controllable position player, because they have plenty of those guys. And I think Logan, Logan Gilbert would have looked good in an Orioles' rotation. Uh, I don't know that the Mariners would going to be, be trading Luis Castillo. I think that's kind of a pipe dream. You know, but there are rumors that they may get into the uh, Shohei Otani sweepstakes, and they're going to need a three or four Briggs trucks in order to make that work. I don't know. what That that was really the story of the deadline, I guess, leading up to it was whether the Angels were going to move him. So I don't know. What do you think? If you were the Angels, would you have done what they have done or you're going for, or would you have tried to cash in on, and get some prospects for him?
1: I mean, personally, I, I think they should have cashed in and got some prospects, but there had to have been some kind of conversations behind closed doors where Shohei said, yeah, I'm not – ruling out signing here, but I need to see some signs of life. You know, I need to see that this team is in some way desiring to win some ball games. Cause since he's been here, they just haven't been a competitive team. And you've, you've got, some would say maybe the most talented player to ever play the game in Otani. Um, when he's healthy, one of the best players in the game in trout and, in trout's career, you've made one playoff appearance. Like, I mean, it's, it's awful, and so I could see why they didn't want to do it because if you lose Otani, there's no replacing that level of skill, right? But also on top of it, how much marketing money do you lose too, Scott? Because if you look around an Angels game, like when the Astros are there, look at how many of those signs are in Japanese and and how many of those are, are bilingual advertisements. They're bringing in big-time advertising money from overseas because they've got Japanese fans tuning in to watch these games. So it's not only an investment to our American fans on the field. This is a financial investment to the whole entire franchise. You know, you could say he's worth $500 million as a player. This guy probably is worth a billion dollars to your franchise because there are Japanese advertisers who will back up their own Brinks truck to you to put their signs in your ballpark.
0: Yeah, the the, the Angels kind of remind me of the White Sox up until this year because I think the White Sox did a pretty good job of selling you know, I I would not have dealt cease if I were them, and they didn't, and so I thought that was pretty smart. The White Sox were always one of those teams that they they were seemed to think they were better than what they were. Uh, the joke I've heard about the Angels is somebody like said, you know, a typical Angels game: Mike Trout hits three home runs, Shohei has done something that nobody has done in baseball for 125 years, and the Angels lose eight to three. I mean, and that's, that's pretty much, you know, what the angels look like, you know, trout, unfortunately has been, you know, had difficulty being healthy these last few years. Lucas Giolito. I mean, he's nice, I guess, but he's not Scherzer. He's not Verlander. So, you know, the angels have done a really good job of sewing up third place in the AL West, but I, I don't see them going any further than that. Uh so, I mean, if they were going to go all in, they really needed to go all in. I felt like they just kind of went half in. Um, so, Scott,
1: let's, let's real quick because I know, um, you know, we're on a, on a time deadline here tonight. But if you were to take, you know, out take the Astros out of it, one winner and one loser from the trade deadline. Okay.
0: So, if I were to go winners in terms of people adding – um, I'm thinking, actually, you know, I think for their situation, I'm going to go the Brewers. And the Brewers, I think, not necessarily because they added a ton, but because nobody else in the, in the NL Central added really anything of note. So, I mean, you're looking at a team that's in a, in a you know, a locked debt, you know, battle with the Reds. The Reds added nothing. They added nothing. So, I mean, they were able to add Schaefer, uh, which actually I was kind of, you know, rooting for the Astros to make a run at him, uh, just to have a second reliever, you know, that we could add to the bullpen and maybe uh, put Montero or, or Stanek on the DL with whiplash. Uh, but that, that didn't happen. But, you know, they added a few pieces. And, you know, I think they did enough to win. NL Central. I think they've pretty much sewn up that, which I can't look at any other division in baseball and say, other than the Braves in the, the NL East, and say, that team definitely is going to win. I think the Brewers are the only ones. Um, I think the NL West is going to be a tight race. I think uh, the AL West is definitely already a tight race. Um, the Central is a tight race, and the AL East is a tight race. Uh, losers, I'll go with the Reds. This was their opportunity, I think, to to make a splash. Uh, They could have added some more pitching. Uh, They've got some exciting young players. They could have capitalized on it, you know, made like at least maybe a wild card push, but they didn't do it. I'm not
1: really sure why. No, I think that's that's a great, great look at the Central. It's wide open. Um, The Reds are one of those teams, too. They're pretty young, so – Again, looking for someone with some playoff experience or someone to help guide these young guys through. Maybe they're just they're counting on Joey Votto to be that guy. We'll see, Scott. We'll definitely ski. Definitely see. Um my biggest winners, you know, I, I think the Blue Jays did a fantastic job at the deadline. Um they got insurance, I think, first and foremost, with, with the Bo Bichette injury. Um going to get DeJong, I think was was a big big opportunity for them because i don't think you know gavin biggio is not a he's not an everyday starter at shortstop especially um so at least you know no matter what happens with bichette you've got a guy who at least can handle uh handle the position and that's that's a division that as tight as it is and as good as it is it's still up for grabs as us are those wild card spots um so i really liked in general the moves that the um, that the Blue Jays made. I thought they made some good ones. The head scratcher for me, Scott, comes from the, the Giants in San Francisco. Um, You're you're leading the wild card. Uh, you're, I think, like a game, a game and a half back of the Dodgers. Um, you know, the news comes out that the Dodgers are trying to get Eduardo Rodriguez, and he invoked a no-trade clause to go there. So you had an opportunity to, you know, get better than the Dodgers realistically. And I mean, yeah, they went and acquired AJ Pollock and Mark Mathias, but um, you know, what did you guys really do other than that? AJ Pollock is okay, but I don't know. You know, like I haven't, I, my, my wife is a Giants fan and I still like, it surprises me every time I they there's still a good ball club this year. Cause you just don't hear anything about them. And um, you know, it would have been nice to see them make a splash and, trying to take that division from the Dodgers because I, I don't like the Dodgers.
0: You know, I think Gabe Kapler does a hell of a job with that team because, you know, you look at that roster. Basically, you, you're mentioning A.J. Pollock as an okay guy. That's a roster of okay guys. There's nobody on that roster who go like, damn, that's a good player. There's a lot of guys who are like, yeah, he's all right. Yeah, uh, Yaz's grandson, yeah, he's he, he, okay Michael Cafordo, yeah I mean he's, he's okay Wilmer Flores yeah I mean, okay he's, he's all right that Blake Stable guy yeah I mean he looks like a nice young player J.D. Davis former Astro yeah you're pretty you know he's a decent guy there's nobody on that team where you're just like damn and yet they're in the hunt seemingly every year I, I don't know how they, they pull it off but I, yeah, I'm with you they, they could have done something um, the Dodgers obviously somewhat disappointing for a team with that much money that they're not able to do a little bit more to add to their starting pitching. Uh, And, you know, the Padres was kind of puzzling to me because I don't see the Padres making the playoffs. This would have been an opportunity for them to sell some, you know, at least some of their impending free agents. I mean, even if they don't want to sell a Juan Soto, they could have maybe traded a Michael Walker. He's a free agent. He, he's not done having a future. Seth Lugo, another impending free agent. You could have maybe dealt him. I I, I would have liked to see him in Houston because he could start or relieve. I mean, that would be a, a nice guy to, to have had. But instead, they add, and you're like, where are you Because you know, I mean, not only do you have the Giants and Dodgers, you have the D backs. You have three different teams. You're going to have to get through if you're the Padres. I just don't see it happening.
1: I'm with you. The, the Padres are that are like the White Sox, right? They're just delusional. They don't realize they're not in it. They they continue to buy every year at the deadline. And I mean, hey, the Astros can continue to cash those, uh, you know, the revenue sharings from the luxury tax threshold that uh, the Padres continue to put themselves in because they spend a lot of money. They spend a lot of money for the, I'd say, subpar results, right? Like, if you're spending that much money, you should be a better baseball team than they are. And this was a great opportunity to unload some of that talent. You think people wouldn't have paid for one Soto at the deadline? Hell yeah, they would have. You think you couldn't have gotten some great, great, um, prospects for Hater, uh, for, you know, Musgrove. There's a lot of, of guys on that roster that would have been highly sought after, um, I and mean, they just didn't pull the trigger. So I, I'm with you on the on the Padres, Scott. Yeah,
0: I don't know that I don't know that I would have dealt Musgrove. Um, I would have kept anybody that's under contract in 2024. Because I mean, I think they have enough talent that if things go differently, they could compete next year. Soto's under contract. Manny Machado's there. Fernando Tatis is there. Uh, That guy Kim at second base, I mean, he's a very underrated player. I mean, he's he's a nice guy. So I could see them adding some prospects here and there. Haters a free agent to be. I mean, are you, I don't see any possible way that they bring all those guys back with all the money that they're shilling out. I mean, do they have any, did they have any really thought of signing Soto long term? Uh, I mean, that's a guy who's a three or $400 million guy. Uh, for as young as he is. So, actually, you know, and, and the last question I'll ask you, not not deadline-related, uh, but I was looking at, speaking of Tatis, I was looking at just right-fielders that have signed big contracts. So, right now, well, technically, Tatis was a shortstop when he signed his contract, but he's a right-fielder now. Bryce Harper, Mookie Betts, um, uh, Trying to Ronald Acuna has a long term contract, but he doesn't really count because that was like pre arbitration stuff. So I'm trying to think who the fourth or there's like four there were four guys who have signed long term contracts as a right fielder. And if you put Kyle Tucker at the midpoint of them, give him a ten year deal, you're looking at about ten years, two hundred eighty million. If you give him a little bit of inflation because he's it. Yeah, I think later. it's
1: I think the number for him is eight years, two fifty. I think that's what gets Kyle Tucker done. If if Crane is so scared of a ten million dollar year, ten year deal, you've got to go eight years, two fifty. You've got the money now. Um, you've got to get it done. You cannot go through arbitration again with Kyle Tucker. You cannot go through that process again. And with Fromber, I think you got to lock Fromber in for. Five at 120 or 125. He's a twenty twenty five 25, 25 million dollar year starter. And, and that's where we're at right now.
0: I think so too. I, I would give him the 10 years because right now, so next year is going to be, he'll be turned 27 in January. So you give him 10 years at that point, he's 37. Now, the whole thing with a 10 year contract, and the whole thing is that you know those last couple of years are going to be brutal. You know that. That There's no getting around that. The Phillies know that when they signed Bryce Harper to their huge deal, you know, that, that ridiculous like 14-year contract. Um, you know that this, the Padres did when they signed Tatis. You know this. But what you're banking on is that he is going to be worth more than that early on. And, you know, if you look at, you know, fan graphs, they usually range about, I would say, $8 million a win tends to be Roughly the average where they're at right now. Kyle Tucker, he's going to have his third season in a row with five or more wins. So that means that makes him, according to Fangraft's model, a $40 million a year guy. You get him for, you know, eight years, 250 That's That's less than $40 million a year. So, I mean, you're banking some of that. Plus, you, know, you have inflation that you're going to work with, and you have that history thing. Where does Tucker? You mean if Tucker gets eight more years? Where do you think he ranks all time amongst all time Astros? You see him being a Hall of Fame guy if he signs another eight years, and plays you know that uh, those eight years relatively healthy.
1: I think uh, the trajectory's on right now is I think he's at least on par with. If, again, if he continues what he's doing right now, I, I think you can expect a Lance Berkman type career which I think is an under underrated career. Lance should have been on the hall of fame ballot longer. Uh, I think he's a better defender in out in the outfield that Lance was, but people forget how good offensively Lance Burpin was, uh, especially from the left side of the plate. So to me, that's, that's kind of where it is, but Scott, I, I can hear the the baby getting going in the, in the background there. So I think we got to uh, kind of get this one towards the end. You have any, any sports scumbags for us this week, Scott? Well, my normal, My normal scumbag,
0: um, I'm going to go with Dusty Baker. I'm sorry, Dusty. Um, He came out with a comment where he basically said that uh, Guillermo Diaz and Martín Maldonado are basically equal offensively in terms of production. It's like I would immediately would have checked him to see if he had the same thing going on that Mitch McConnell had. Because, I mean, he's having some kind of a stroke or aneurysm or something, you know, if that's if that's what's firing through his brain. And that's what scares me about this whole thing is that, you know, everybody keeps talking about, hey, let's get this guy, let's get this guy. And every time you're stopping, you're like, yeah, but would Dusty play them? And if that's your thing, and that's, you know, and I, I'm sure he had you know, something, you know, to do with getting Graveman. I'm sure he had something to do with getting Verlander. And those are nice moves. But I think there are some guys out there, particularly in Graveman's case, there are some relievers out there who probably were better. But do you trust Dusty to use them correctly? And 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 if he really thinks that Martín Maldonado is just as good as Yadier your Diaz, then I, I don't know. I, I, I can't at this point.
1: No, I, I think you're absolutely right that Everything he every time someone says something about Maldy um, Dusty gets so defensive. He really does. It's absolutely outrageous, and it's it's frustrating as a fan to deal with because I feel like we all know who the guy who should be playing is, um, and it just doesn't happen. Uh, this week, I'm I'm going to talk about Iowa State quarterback Hunter Decker's. Uh, he's being accused of gambling on sporting events at Iowa State. And he placed 366 bets, totaling 2,799 dollars. Now I did the math on that, Scott. That's about seven sixty-five, seven dollars and sixty-five cents that he's placing on each bet. Why do we care? Why do I guess it's probably with friends he's about oh, ten bucks. Texas beats on like what do we, what do we care? But we do. He's going to be suspended. I hate the NCAA. I really do. I I mean the governing body. I don't mean the kids that play in it. I mean, come on. You can bet on your phone on any one of these games at any point, and this guy's wagering $7.65 a game, and and we're fucking worried about that? Like, come on.
0: The technology is there where you could sit there and say, okay, dude, don't bet on Iowa State. And that's as simple as as that you can make it. It's like Calvin Ridley, you know, getting suspended for the year in the NFL. Do you ever bet on the Falcons? Do you even bet on the NFL? I don't, I mean, I don't know the the ins and outs of that story, but yeah, I'm with you. But hey, Colorado's coming into the Big 12, you know, are you excited about seeing some Deion Sanders football?
1: I am. I, I think for the first time, you know, as a UH fan being on this side of alignment, is fun. You know, I think hopefully Dion brings some life to the program, which brings life to the Big Twelve and at the end of the day brings money uh to the university through a TV contract. So it should be exciting. Um, but you know, as they say uh over here, duty is calling Scott, so I think we are gonna, right. have to, gonna have to kind of have to kind of wrap this one up. First. All right. Where could the folks find you, Tim? Tim underscore Costello ten on on uh, I guess threads on on Twitter and threads actually you can find me on both. Um, I'm at sbarzilla on Twitter and threads as well. But I I
0: also started my own Substack as I mentioned in the podcast and uh, been doing some writing there. So you know come check that out. I do I still do some writing for one Day to Gene and Battle Red Blog. So uh, just doing a lot of writing these days.
1: Well hey, be sure to check out Scott's writing again. We appreciate. Joanne for coming on and joining us uh, again be sure to check out um, all of her work as she is are you effing kidding me uh, as her podcast as well as her sub stack so be sure to check that out but again we appreciate everybody who made us a part of your week we will see you next time on the Snap Hook Thank you for tuning in to the Snap Hook and making scott and i a part of your week we wanted to recognize that our intro song is called energetic indie rock by alex scroll and this outro music is good vibe by Twisterium. we appreciate everyone who tunes in each and every week and is part of the snap hook movement we we'll look forward to seeing you next week on the snap hook